Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and a warm welcome uh, to Brangaroo Studios. This is The Call. We've got 10 stocks uh, picked by you, two experts, one hour. It is, of course, Tuesday, the 21st of July. I'm Ingrid Bullinger. Let's get straight into it. We've got our guests for today's show. Joining me in the studio is Michael Gable. He's here from Fairmont Equities. And, of course, via Skype, Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. They'll be with us for the full hour to take us through the stocks we are watching. But let's kick it off with the stock of the day. Of course, the one we are watching right now, Downer EDI, the infrastructure and mining services company gone into a trading halt ahead of a $400 million capital raising to bolster its balance sheet. Let's talk about this one in a bit more detail. Uh, Michael, I'll kick it off with you. What do you think of the announcement today first up by Downer and what does it mean for the stock going forward? I think in some respects it was it was expected that they need to raise some money. So they're, they're raising funds at about a 12% discount um, I mean, the shares haven't been trading very well in the last few weeks, several weeks anyway. So I think the market was expecting some sort of raising. So they're going to pay off the spotless um, acquisition uh, and then just bolster the, the balance sheet there. So look, as a company, it's not one I'm you know, overly enthused about. Mm. So I think there's concerns over, you know, with their contracts with, with rail, you know, what sort of, um, you know, commuter numbers are we going to see over the next few years? What demand will there be? Um, for downer services, obviously with Spotless in the hospitality area, that's a bit, well, not just a bit subdued, but demand there's massively, you know, will be massively mm. subdued for a number of months. So um, whilst some of their government contracts are quite defensive, um, it'd be interesting to see how the market takes this um, mm. capital raising. What we've seen over the last few months is companies that do raise capital, I think eight times out of 10 have gone on to trade higher. But um, yeah, interesting to see how it will trade, not necessarily one I'd be jumping into. All right, Scott, what's your take? Yeah, Ingrid, Michael, good afternoon. I, I agree with Michael. I think, you know, we do expect to see companies trade higher in large part because they offer the shares at such a big discount that it's almost blasphemy not to buy the shares and at least take advantage of that benefit. Um, I agree with Michael. Downer has been a really significant kind of sideways performer. I, I don't look at share price movements, as you guys well know, but Man, this has been a very ordinary operating business for a very, very long time. I want to say it's about the same price that traded a decade ago. Um, and when you start with that premise, and again, the market will do what the market will do, but if there was any value creation, any meaningful value creation, we'd see it already in the share price. Um, it, it, look, very, very tough industry, low margins, hyper competitive, very undifferentiated, generally speaking. The spotless thing has been, I want to say a disaster. I think I'm not too far away from saying it, it, it being you know, objectively right. Um, Downer is, is really not doing well. Trying to find growth desperately. Spotless was supposed to be the answer. Maybe finally when they have it all inside the tent, it'll start to do a bit better for them. Uh, but this has been a really, really tough business. There's just no reason to own it. And I think this is one you want to leave well and truly, well enough alone. 
I think it'd be a better result coming through from the operating business. Well. All right, stock of the day, a no uh, from both our guests there with Downer EDI. Uh, but we'll keep an eye on that one when it reopens. Let's get to our first stock, though, the 10 stocks we're watching today. This is number one, Boral Limited, um, ticker BLD. And, of course, it comes just a few days after we've seen Seven Group moving up the register on this one. Michael, what's your take on Boral? Um, look, it is interesting in, in a way. I mean, in terms of what's been happening in the last few years, it's been a, a big disappointment. They've had a number of write-downs. Uh, an acquisition in the US just, you know, ended up being a complete flop. Um, but on the positive note, they, they're leveraged to uh, an improving economy. So in my opinion, the stocks that can do well over the next 12 months are generally those which are leveraged to the economy reopening. Borrow, in some respects, fits that bill, and that's probably why we're seeing uh, the creeping up on, on the register there. Um, look, it's not the best quality, um, I guess, building company out there. I think James Hardy's probably the pick in the sector. But, um, you know, for a stock that's been beaten down and has the potential to turn around, um, I, think, I think it's interesting. It's trading pretty well. It's been holding in with the market. Um, you know, we may well see some upside over the next several months. So you may buy it here. Yeah, I may well buy it here. Okay, I'm going to put you down as a buy for that one. Scott, what's your take? <laughs> I'm not going to give you that one, Ingrid, this time for me. Uh, again, it's one of those businesses, just, it's just an ordinary performer, right? I think we're kind of tempted to buy these things because they're blue chip, they're well-known, they're big. All those things that kind of tick those kind of lazy boxes. If you look at Boral's operating performance, and again, look at its decade-long share price, I just pulled that up while Michael was speaking. It, too, is about the same price it was this time in 2010. It's a very, very long time to go nowhere if you've been a... What's a long-suffering shareholder? Because at least you haven't lost any money, or at least not much money. Um, it's just a hard business to, to justify. Now, to Michael's point, if you do get meaningful economic recovery here and in the US, Boral should do well. On the flip side of that, you think about what's happening with new homes in Australia in particular right now, and I assume in the US as well, we are going to see a slowdown before we see a recovery, I think. Now, I don't think the current share price has that priced in at all. A little bit sure, maybe, you know, you can justify some of it. But if we get a meaningful slowdown of the sort of new home kind of sales falls that we're seeing or construction starts we're seeing here in the US as well. We may well see borrow slip to a loss or at least a really meaningfully reduced profit that's not justified by the current share price fall. This is what I'd, I'd happily buy. To Michael's point, if you want to try and time a recovery, I think that's coming yet though. I think there's probably more bad news to come rather than good news. Now across the market, we know the market doesn't necessarily follow step for step what's happening in the real economy. Certainly we've seen that with the recovery since March, despite the fact COVID gets, keeps getting worse. Um, but broadly speaking, it's just not one I want to buy until either I get a really, really cheap price or there's more certainty that the recovery is sooner rather than later. I'm not going to have to go through more of a, a slump before I get there. Yeah, we don't have much evidence of that at this point. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to the next stock. Uh, we're watching South 32. Um, this one's interesting. Just booked a $150 million impairment charge, of course. Michael, I'll kick it off with you on this one. South 32, what's your thoughts? Um, I mean, in terms of material stocks in general, I think they can do well over the next 12 months. Again, as the economy um, comes off a low base, as the Chinese try to stimulate their economy, you know, commodity stocks can do well. And if you take the view that with all the money printing over time, that should uh, lead to inflation eventually, then you want to be in real assets, and that includes um, commodities. I mean, I've been a buyer of BHP and Fortescue recently, but mm. South 32. As we know, it's the spin-off of, of BHP. So mm. you've got uh, commodities in there such as coal and uh, aluminium, which haven't really been doing well over the last couple of years. And this is why South 32 last calendar year had a fairly poor year um, compared to the majors. So um, look, I think there's 
because of the, as I said, the economy reopening, the stimulus in China, we may well see some of these commodity prices improve a bit. That may well see South 32's share price improve a bit. It seems to be trading okay at the moment. It looks like there is a bit of buying coming in down at these levels, but longer term, I'd rather be in some other uh, commodity place. So it's a no We'd from call you. that a no. Okay, no from you on South 32. This, comes, uh, this stock comes to us from Melanie, I should say. Thank you, Melanie, for um, the question on this one. Scott, what's your take? Yeah, I'm going to take the same view as Michael, but with an obviously conclusion. If that sounds strange, the difference is the time frame. Um, I, I've said before, Ingrid, we've been working together for a very long time. You'll know my answer on this one. Uh, I like BHP and South 32 as a combined entity. Even, the, even my brothers, I would have kept them together rather than have them spin off. It generally speaking has a diversified group of commodities. Generally, notwithstanding the write down recently, a decent quality group of resource and resource bases. And so from that perspective, if you want resources exposure, now I'll be very clear, I'm not a resources guy, as you well know, and our viewers well know, uh, but if you want resources exposure, you can do a lot worse than owning the old BHP. Grab some BHP shares, grab some South 32 shares, put the business back together, at least in your portfolio, if not in reality. Um, you're getting a really high quality, well-run operation with a very diverse resource base. And if you want broad resource exposure, that's exactly how I do it. So I have no view on the next 12 months or, or the commodity specific view on prices or operations. What I do want to do if I'm buying resources buy quality diversified operations, well-run businesses with good track records and South 32 with BHP, I think fits that bill. So if you want to buy resources, this is exactly the one I'd be buying as long as, as well as Big Brother, I should say. Okay, so you'd be buying South 32 right now? Yeah, look, I mean, again, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a resources guy, so I'm not buying specifically yeah. based on the individual commodity, the individual prices. I'm literally saying over time, if you want exposure, you get diversification, you get quality assets and quality management. Um, as I as I know a little bit, not know nothing, but not know a lot, resource investor, I'd be saying, you know what, that's exactly what I want. I want broad exposure, I want diversification. And most importantly, I think with resource, unless you're going to try and time prices, which is stupidly tough, then you want to buy good management because they're going to make the best out of whatever's presented to them. And that's the best way, I think, in resources to put your put the odds in your favour over the medium and long term. So yeah, from that perspective, South 32 is worth buying. All right, let's talk lithium because the next stock comes to us uh, from Peter. This is on Oracobra, of course. This one, lithium play, it's been through um, somewhat of its heyday. You imagine it's got further to run though. Michael, what's your take? Um, I mean, even you know, for the last couple of years, back when we were on Your Money, uh, we'd get all these questions on lithium stocks and I was negative then and I'm still a bit <laughs> cautious now, Ingrid. I mean, the, uh, you know, lithium had a great run a few years ago. It was the, the hot sector. Yeah. Um, a lot of supply came on, um, crashed the price and all the share prices of these co uh, lithium stocks uh, fell through the floor as well. So um, ORE, you know, it's had, a, it's had a really bad couple of years. Um, Look, in terms of the shorter term, it seems to be trading pretty well. It looks like it wants to head higher, but, um, you know, lithium price is still quite low. It wasn't, you know, prices weren't that great pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. I just can't see them necessarily lifting, um, you know, in the next 12 months either. So I think what we're seeing in RE is probably a dead cap bounce. I mean, it's still in an overall downtrend, in my opinion. So... I think it's too early to, to get excited about this sector. But even with the EV and Tesla, I mean, you look at Tesla's run, that doesn't yeah. get you any more excited? It all comes back to, you know, just this, just so much supply for, for what, you know, Tesla's doing and mm. all the other, you know, Tesla, you know, we think of Tesla, we think of this stock that's done incredibly well in terms of its share price. It's worth more than Ford, worth more than Toyota. But as we know, 
uh, in terms of the actual number of vehicles they produce compared to the, the rest of the car industry, it's still quite small. So I think, yes, there is increasing demand, but I think for the supply out there, there's still just a bit of a mismatch that will keep a, a lid on the share price. All right, Scott, what's your take? Yeah, I'm going to echo Michael's point, Ingrid. If you think about, let, let's go back 100 years-ish, 110 maybe, and think about cars, right? If someone said, look, there's a new, there's a new car, it's the new horse is cars, and they're all going to use oil, and oil's going to be fantastic. You've got to get oil now because it's going to go through the roof. Because guess what? There's not much of it around. There's only a few people mining it. Let's get in there now before, you know, before it really takes off. Of course, we know the story there, right? What happened is every man and his dog decided to draw for oil and have done for the century since. Um, that means that even if the demand itself, even if you knew car demand was going to skyrocket, and it would have been a stupidly optimistic yet correct view to take. If you did 1905 and someone had said there will be X million or billion cars sold between now and 2020, you jump on the industry and say, you know what? Oil can't lose. They're going to jump in. Look at the rising demand. This is going to be wonderful. You would have been right on the demand side. The supply side, though, would have taken your feet out from under you and probably, after inflation, give you a very, very tough return on oil as a commodity. So that's my view on lithium as well. It's fine to say demand will increase. I'm sure it will, by the way. I think there's no, well, there's probably a few more certain things, death and taxes among them. There's not many more certain things than lithium will, demand will increase as EV sales grow. Absolutely, tick that box. But if the price goes up with lithium, it means there has to be constrained demand, uh, constrained supply, I should say. I don't see that happening. I think we'll see much more supply come to market as simply demand makes it worthwhile. Um, like every commodity almost ever, lithium is bound to ride the same train in my view. So I'd be saying well away. Great story stock, great story. Not a great investment I don't expect and from here. Scott, just to say that's across the board for most, most lithium plays in your view? Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you think about the price, I mean, these, these are supposed to be and should be um, leverage plays on the lithium price. And so whatever miner you're buying, unless there's something really, really specific. I mean, like I said, with South 32, all the miners can control is their operations, their operating costs. The rest is the rest is price. And if price doesn't get above a certain level and stay above that level, your profitability is going to be harmed by that outcome. So I, I get why people want to look at the demand story. Again, we've talked many, many times, Ingrid and Michael mentioned the old days. Um, you know, we talked many times about airlines, right? If you told me in 1970 that the next 50 years airlines would airline travel go through the roof, I would have jumped in, I would have bought every airline stock, I would have mortgaged the house, and it would have been spectacularly wrong because again, rising demand doesn't necessarily deliver rising profits. Um, even you know sustainable businesses, most of those airlines have gone broke once, twice, or three times in the last 50 years. So um, you know, don't be sucking into the demand story. I'd be saying well away. All right, so both of you are no uh, for Oracobra. Next stock we want to look at, the fourth stock for the day, BetaShares Cyber ETF Hack. This comes from David. Thanks, David. This is a really interesting one, particularly given that big Twitter um, hack that happened earlier in the week. It's put it in the focus at the moment and, of course, work from home. Scott, I'll start with you on this one. The work from home trend, I imagine, um, puts this one on the radar. What's your take? Can you, can you imagine how many unsecured devices are being used right now to access sensitive company information? I mean, as you say, putting on the wrap well and truly, there've got to be many CTOs, chief technology officers around the world, around the country, kind of, you know, freaking out quietly that, yeah, you can let your staff work from home, but gee, I hope everything's protected. I hope there's no viruses on the home PCs. I hope there's no malware being loaded on. I mean, yeah, it really must keep you up at night if you're a big company CTO. And as you mentioned, Twitter is, is just the latest. Now that wasn't a work from home problem, that was a targeted hack. but. You know, the same kind of outcome is possible. When you look at this ETF, though, this is very much an ETF that is about, you know, it's very much, very much a thematic investment. Now, that can be great if the theme is right. Um, but again, it's one of those things I, I'm generally bearish or at least cautious about thematic ETFs. And the reason is you don't really know unless you do a heap of research which companies are in there, how profitable they are, how likely they are to succeed, even if 
more money is being spent on these services or products over the next 5, 10, 15 years, it's entirely possible that given the weightings of the ETF or the companies that have chosen the ETF, you don't always get the same sort of return. It could be that you're right about the theme, but the companies themselves don't necessarily do well, or at least in the same proportions as they exist in the ETF currently. So you're kind of adding an extra level of complexity you don't really need. Um, if you want to take a, a really key kind of thematic macro view and say, despite that, this will do well, I guess I, I wouldn't strongly argue against it. But I have to say, for me, ETF should be more about that really super broad index-based passive investing rather than trying to be kind of clever about something so hot button as this. As you say, you could almost ride the news cycle on this one, right? It's almost a day trader's dream or at least mm. a, a kind of macro trader's dream. You kind of look at what's going on. You, you, you buy it, Twitter, then when the news goes away, you sell, maybe you come back. I mean, if that's your thing, that's your thing. I, I don't do it. I can't do it. But um, maybe over time, I think, tech, I think, is going to be great. I think, I think a broad tech ETF is great. The hack ETF, again, I get the idea. I get the premise. It seems likely that this will do well. But again, you, you kind of, unless you know the companies within it, unless you understand the weightings and where their respective strengths and weaknesses are, there's a very good chance you'll do better looking at individual companies. Because by, by the time you've done the research, by the way, on the ETF, you probably know which companies you like best anyway. Um, a basket approach can work. I'm not a massive fan of active uh, ETFs and thematic ETFs. And this is why I, I think I'd probably choose others instead of it. But I also don't, I wouldn't want people to rush away from it necessarily. I think it would badly. Yeah. I just think you're taking the risk than you believe when an ETF is supposed to be a lower risk diversified, you know, broad, low cost index option, which is what most people talk about. This is a very, very, very different ETF. Yeah, spoken like a true active investor, I guess. I've been looking there, cautious on the thematic uh, sort of ETFs. Um, so it's a no from you, but you don't mind the theme. You just It's more that you'd, you'd be more stock specific with it. Thanks for that. Scott, mm. Michael, what's your take? Um, look, generally, I'd, I'd agree in terms of being stock specific. So there's you know ETFs that are very, I guess, fashionable now. You know, you're getting something which plays to a narrative. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, if you can just dig a little bit deeper, you can do better. So the Hack ETF, um, its largest constituent has done really well. Um, but then there's other companies in there like Cisco and Okta, which, okay, have an element of cyber um, defensiveness or whatever mm. you want to call it, cybersecurity. But there's other parts of their business as well. So you, you're getting exposed to companies that do maybe things which you're not necessarily wanting exposure to, and you're paying a bit of a higher fee uh, in terms of the management fees for that privilege. So mm. I think if you were to purchase, for example, just a, a NASDAQ ETF, uh, the internal fees are cheaper uh, and it's actually been doing a lot better than um, this particular ETF. But yeah, if you wanted to be, I guess, um, uh, you know, if you don't have the effort to, to put into to buying specific stocks, I think you're just better off with a NASDAQ ETF than than something like this. Yeah, you two very similar on um, your theme there, but that's a no from both of you, more in light of the, the broad ETF um, theme, I guess, in terms of thematics. That is the, we've got one more stock to do um, before we wrap up that first part of the show, Mesoblast, ticker MSB. This comes from us from James. Thanks for that, James. Um, Michael, I'll start with you on this one. Mesoblast, it's one yep. we talk about a bit. What's your take on this one? Is it buy, hold, sell? Uh, at the end of the day, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be keen on it. So look, it's it's okay as a trading stock. I mean, if you have a look at what it's done over the last 10 or so years, it's it pretty much crashed after the GFC and then has done not much since then, but in a big range. So it's great for the day traders, but um, you know, it's a company that always seems to be turning up with cap in hand, raising mm. money, um, especially after announcements like we saw a couple of months ago, but um, that's just been sold into and now the, the share price is, is languishing again. So, I mean, I don't have the ticker for 
Um, for, for something like this in the longer term, I don't think it, it makes anyone money in the longer term. It's just more of a trade. Yeah, because there's a five-year chart and it's sitting right up there, isn't it? It's done well. I mean, I mean, it's done well in the yeah. last couple, of, you know, year or so. Yeah, yeah. Months. So if you can catch those swings, but if you bought it five years ago at the top of that range, um, you've had a you've, tough five years. You've done nothing, and you've, yeah. you've given yourself a few grey hairs along the way because of the pullbacks. Yeah. Okay. Good point, Scott. What's your take on Visa Blast? Uh, I, I'm really worried about Meso Blast shareholders, Ingrid. If you look at that one-year chart you guys had up on the screen for a bit just then, it, it's tripled out of the gate effectively on the back of coronavirus. Now, it was, you know, the, the previous couple of months before that, you can see there from January through to March, the share, shares fall by two-thirds. And then all of a sudden, almost on a dime because COVID happens, and hey, Meso Blast might possibly maybe do something that might possibly be related to that. You know, an investor desperate to find some sort of COVID exposure, you mm. see the shares triple now maybe this is the new normal and maybe it finds something and maybe my caution is unwarranted a lot of maybes there um i i'm i'm really concerned for those shareholders look you know if you know what you're doing or if michael says if you're day trading it knock yourself out um I, I think there is very little substantial fundamental basis for that share price rise which means if that's true and most of what's going into the share price over the last six months is sentiment then you're hoping that sentiment doesn't go away or if and when it does you're going to be handed a big fat loss and so I, I, you know, if you own the stock, if you own it for long-term reasons, longer term than this, if you think in five, 10 years time, they're gonna have some wonderful drug, wonderful solution for a particular malady or cause or issue, then great. If you're literally though buying at, at a buck and you got to $3, you're like, wow, that was lucky. Um, I think now's your time to cash out, quite honestly. So, you know, they're trying to do the right thing, but Mesoblast is kind of one of those little, little engines that could, but hasn't yet. Uh, it thinks it could, it thinks it could, it hasn't yet done it. Maybe it never does, maybe it finally does, but. This is not one for the long-term shareholder. It's not one for the fundamental shareholder. And the most recent price section, I think, is largely not entirely sentiment-driven, which is fine as long as that sentiment stays the right way. When the tide goes back out, there's nothing below it other than that sentiment itself. Back down to, I don't know, and I'm not, I'm not technical, so I'm not predicting support levels or anything else. Just, just broadly speaking, it was a dollar in March. Why wouldn't it go back to a dollar at some future point if sentiment goes away and nothing fundamental comes out? So there really is a lot of risk on the downside for that one. If you've made some money, great. I'd be taking my money off the table and putting it somewhere else. Okay, it's a no from both of you then. Look, you haven't given me much to work with, but you've both given one by <laughs> different stocks. We'll take it. Let's have a wrap up of um, how the first few stocks or five or six stocks, including the stock of the day, have tracked from your perspectives. Um, I'll just mention Downer first. It was a no from both of you after that announcement today. You've got Borrell in there. That was the first stock. We did get a buy from Michael, um, but it was a no from Scott. South 32, we got a yes from Scott, but a no from Michael. Uh, Oracobra, we got a no from both of you. Beta shares, ETF hack, although you do like the sort of thematic, you don't like buying um, the whole bunch of stocks in an ETF. So we got a no from both of you on that one. And Mesoblast, a no from both of you. So a couple of buys in there from at least one of you. We'll take that. We'll see how we go um, in the next half of the show, though, see if we can get a few more. Um, in the meantime, please do tune in uh, to The Pulse a little later. All eyes are on the government this week as we look ahead to the economic update on Thursday. To give us his thoughts, we're joined by our former opposition leader, and professor at ANU, uh, Dr. John Hewson. So that's coming up on The Pulse from 1.40 Eastern. Let's get straight back into it because we've still got five stocks to go uh, on the call. One of these is Kogan. Um, it's been out with some numbers in the last couple of days. Michael, I'll start with you on this one. This comes mm. from Eleanor, by the way. Thanks for your uh, question, Eleanor. Ticker KGN. Michael, what's your yeah. take? Um, look, I think it's Obviously, it's doing really well in terms of the share price, and it's one I'd continue holding on to based on how it's performing at the moment. I mean, it's 
it's interesting, Kogan, because if you go back uh, a year or two, um, just in terms of the way that the, um, the owners have fumbled the, their share sales and the timing to the market on, on particular announcements, I mean, it sort of left a bit of a sort of a bad smell there in the market, but mm. they've really come good in terms of uh, the business over the last few months, obviously helped by, um, by the virus here, the pandemic. So sales are going through the roof. Um, another update today, everything looks looks pretty good. So it's now in that territory of, you know, they're, they're growing sales, you know, at such a rate now um, that it's, you know, people are finding it hard to, to value uh, the, these sorts of companies. So, you know, it's on a bit of a tear. You know, the momentum's there. We don't know when it would end. I mean, I was having a look at the chart before. I think if you run something like a 10 or say a 15 day uh, moving average against where the share price is, um, it seems to be hugging that pretty well. So I'd basically use that as a trailing stop and just, you know, let this thing run. Uh, if it falls under that moving average, um, you can sell out. But I think it's too early to, to say, okay, well, it's had its run. It's too expensive mm. now because there's still a lot of unknowns over the next few months or so in terms so of where the sales could go. Can we summarise you as a buy? Yes, let's Okay, we're going to take it. A buy for Kogan uh, from Michael. Scott, what do you think? Ingrid, uh, I'm going to say first off, just go, go back to your, your announcement. And, and not, this is not supposed to be self-promotion, by the way, but I had Dr. Houston on our podcast last couple of weeks. He is a fantastic guest. So uh, your viewers are in for a treat at 1.40. So don't go anywhere after the call. Make sure you hang around for Dr. Houston. Um, a bit of support with that in the ad. Um, Kogan, full disclosure, I own Kogan shares. So let, let me put that also on the table up front. Um, I think Kogan is a really high quality business. The growth of those numbers, triple digit growth in sales, profit, adjusted profit, kind of pick your number. The, the numbers have been spectacularly good. Now, they're not going to stay around. Um, people are shopping there because they can't or won't shop anywhere else. That will change at some point. We'll go back to Harvey Norman, we'll go back to Bingley or JB Hi Fi or anywhere else. So these aren't, these aren't going to stay at these elevator levels forever necessarily as a straight line. Over time, though, once you introduce people to another way of shopping, a better way, easier way of shopping, and they've jumped over to either start shopping online or do more shopping online, it does change habits. And I think globally that will remain the case. We're going to see um, Amazon shares, again, you know, and those shares were upgraded overnight by a lot of brokers too, uh, on, a similar, on a similar vein. And I think these, these aren't necessarily unchangeable trends, but they're likely to be trends, you know, for the very long term, I mm -hmm. think. And so that it justifies Kogan's growth. The other thing about it is it paid about 60 odd, which is really expensive. But um, it's on a really low and, and unusually low level of profitability. Now, if it can simply tweak those margins a little like the Amazon story, um, it doesn't take much to turn a PE of 60 to a PE of 20 just by you know making a couple of margin points on the bottom line. They're making such low net margins right now because they're reinvesting in the business growth. If that continues, and I think it will, um, that does all go really well for Kogan. I, you know, the other thing about share price being so high, I expect volatility, right? I don't know. Share price could be 20 or 12 in the next two months. Um, I don't know which one, maybe both, because that's the way that, again, sentiment drives it. I think in this case, though, there is genuine underpinned performance, both at sales and profit levels, that does suggest Kogan has a really good long-term potential. So again, short-term, who knows? Medium-term, who knows? Long-term, I'm a pretty happy Kogan shareholder, and I'd happily buy more today. Great. I'm taking you as a buyer. So we've got a double buy for that one. Kogan uh, going forward, and the, 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 this chart there looks pretty good for a year in terms of being on an upward trajectory, but you both think it's got further runs. So that's a good sign. Um, so a buy for Kogan from both our guests there. We'll move on uh, from that one and talk Resolute Mining. This comes to us from Liam. So thanks for that, Liam. Ticker RSG. Scott, I'll start with you on Resolute. What's your take? Yeah, it's a really good one. I, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a resources guy, right? So I'm, all, I'm always mindful of master about them because I'm ine inevitably 
if not negative, at least cautious. I don't have a single resource stock in my portfolio or any of our scorecards, and there's a very good reason for that. They generally tend not to make money over the long term for investors. So if you're a long term investor and you're looking at these businesses saying, well, I don't know what the most important component of its valuation is going to be, which is the price of its commodity, you can't really value the business. And, and it's very, very hard to have a really strong view. So, um, I mean, without want to add another, add another jargon, I'd say avoid largely just because I really don't see how, you know, it's possible to have a long-term long -term investment view on a company like Resolute based on the commodity prices. I know that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but um, again, you know, the job of the fundamental investor is to find long-term potential and go with it. Um, for Resolute, for me, I just, I don't see why you would put money into that sort of business, that sort of investment, where there are others out there that have a more estimable future, not a certain future, nothing certain, of course. But if you know that, or you believe that, say, Kogan, to use the last example, or or um, our South, you know, other businesses have, have a, a broader, more manageable, more more easily guessable, estimable, long-term future, I'd rather invest in those um, than try and take a punt on a commodity price. So I'd be seeking clear of it, not because I don't like it, not because this company in particular is terrible, just because I don't see a, a fundamental basis for valuation. Yeah, you don't see a financial basis valuation. Um, not a big fan of, of, of that for that reason. Resolute Mining to get oh, RSG. Yeah. Michael, what's your take? Um, ultimately, it's not one that I'd, I'd want to purchase. Um, look, I think gold prices can continue to do well mm. uh, over the next couple of years. But if you compare something like Resolute to a to a Northern Star, it, um, it just really hasn't performed over the last um, several years. Mm. Um, you know, their cash... Uh, their, their cost of production is uh, a little bit high, and that's why you get these big swings uh, in its share price movement. This is why it's basically doubled off its lows a few months ago, but it's still well down um, from its recent peaks. So um, ultimately, I'd be, you know, if I was going to invest in this space, I'd just go for, for the quality names if I'm looking to hold something longer term. Mm. Uh, otherwise, if you're looking to trade something like this, uh, you know, on the chart, there's a lot of resistance around $1.30. So I think if it was to crack that, um, you can have a bit of a trade, but as we could see on the longer-term chart, it doesn't give me much confidence that um, that Resolute would be a longer-term hold. So, is this a Resolute story or a gold story? More so, I guess a bit of both. So, I like gold, but Resolute doesn't seem to be, you know, delivering the business when it comes to a shareholder return. Okay. So, if if you like a particular sector, I think you need to go either with a stronger name, or at mm -hmm. least with gold. There's also an ETF you can just, you know, if you want to. Do it the lazy way, just, yeah. just buy the gold ETF and that'll give you the, up, the upside exposure. All right, that's Resolute Mining for you, ticker RSG. All right, the next one is Oznet uh, Services, ticker AST. This comes from Katie. Uh, Michael, just tell us a bit about Oznet and, and whether you like it. Um, look, it's, so it's fairly defensive, so involved in uh, the distribution of uh, gas electricity in Victoria, but we know Victoria um, has its um, issues at the moment. So, um, you know, I guess the demand for the services you'd expect would be a little bit lower over time. And the last time Osnet updated the market, um, they suggested a cut uh, to the dividend. So this is one of those defensive stocks that is supposed to pay a reliable dividend. So I think it's about 5%, um, has a yield of about 5%, but mm. the share price over the last you know, five years has, has basically not delivered anything for you. So um, if you're after something defensive with a reliable yield, yes, it seems to be okay. But I think with the market down at these levels and the potential to recover quite dramatically over the next couple of years, I think you'd get a better return out of any other, almost any other stock um, mm -hmm. that has the potential to recover. I think in a couple of years from now, Osnet probably trading at the same price, probably still giving you 5% a year. Whereas 
you know, other companies like a Macquarie or an Aristocrat or, mm. or something with a bit of growth to it might actually give you something more like a 20% return over the next year or two. So, so a hold really from you? Ultimately, from, yeah, hold, but hold. for the sake of the program, I'd say no. All right, a no from uh, Michael on Oznet. Scott, do you have a different view? I wish I did because it'd make it more interesting. Look, I'll take a slightly different perspective to Michael just in terms of, and maybe I'm repeating some of what he said though, this is an income stock. Um, and I'll amplify Michael's point a little bit. If you're looking for a business that can, so, so let me start back a bit further actually. If you're investing in a, a, a stock because you want to get a good return, you want to beat the market with that company, right? Because if you don't want to beat the company, beat the market, you should be buying the market. If, you, if you're by definition not trying to win um, and you think you're going to come second, why would you choose to come second? So. The audit doesn't have the capacity, I don't think, over the medium and long term to beat the market because it simply can't grow meaningfully on top of that. It has an existing network, there's existing capital costs. It's going to continue to make a, you know, again, we're talking about the pole road, right? Clip the ticket on electricity transmission. It'll do that and do it really, really, really well. But if the market's going to grow at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% a year, where is the fundamental underpinning for Osnet's profit growth of that sort? It can't raise prices that fast. It can't add consumers that fast. It can't add transmission wires without or transmission line without adding cost. So there's really no, there's no engine, there's no fundamental economic engine that drives profit growth, right? Now that's fine, that's, that's completely okay. But as an investor, if I can get 10% on the market or something less than that with Osnet, why would I choose Osnet? The answer is probably income. So if you outright are looking to beat the market, stay away from Osnet. If you want a decent income, and frankly, everything that was supposed to be safe was supposed to be the banks, that didn't happen. It was supposed to be insurance companies, that didn't happen. Mm. Um, you know, the old faithful, Elstra hasn't gone anywhere in years. So if you're, if you're looking for income, I think this is a great inclusion in an income portfolio. So it has absolutely has a place, a really valuable place. No franking, but a valuable five, five and a half percent dividend. So take it for that. Just know that in doing so, you're giving up the ability to beat the market. So again, why would you buy it? Well, again, it depends what you're asking. Ingrid. For an income investor, absolutely buy. For a someone who wants a total return to maximize their total return, absolutely don't buy it because you'll get better returns on the market. Buy the market ETF, if nothing else, or go and try and find a stock that actually can beat the market return. Okay, so income investor, yes, but basically a no from you. I'll, I'll summarise that as Scott. Would that be accurate? Right, so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll leave Osnet there then and move on to our next stock, um, Iris, ticker IRE. This comes to us from Max. So thank you, Max, for the question. Scott, I'll kick this off with you. Iris, what's your take on this one? Is it a buy, hold, sell? Look, I th- <laughs> I'm going to say hold on this one, Ingrid. The, um, the challenge with Iris is if you think about the way it makes its money, Corporate actions and selling data terminals effectively or renting out data terminals effectively are the two big pieces of business for Iris. Now, again, if you think about over time, more of us going online, stockbroking hasn't grown in sales numbers in a very, in employee numbers are in a very, very long time. Um, businesses are finding ways to either do more with less or people are moving online, that kind of stuff. So the amount of Iris subscriptions haven't been growing in a very long time in any meaningful way. And so again, if you're looking to boost profit over time, you see from that graph, I mean, that, that's, that's exactly the story, right? In four and a half years, it's gone nowhere. It's very, very hard to get growth in this business because it's kind of saturated. Every, every broker has a data source, a data replica, a screening tool, whatever it is, a Bloomberg style terminal already. You're not gonna have a second or a third one per person. Maybe you change from Bloomberg to Iris, from Iris to somebody else and back again. But again, the total sector, a bit like the banks, right? The market's saturated. It's not going to grow other than maybe by a couple of cent a year if you're lucky, but frankly, with stockbroking, likely to go the other way. And again, analysts are the same thing. Research analysts likely to go the same way, fewer rather than more people. If that's true and you're in that industry, you're kind of looking at a pretty bleak set of headwinds. Um, now, that doesn't mean Iris is a terrible business. It just means growth is going to be hard to come by. The benefit or the, the opportunity for Iris is global. So 
South Africa was supposed to be the big win. Canada was supposed to be the big win. I think the UK at some point was supposed to be the big win. They're really, really struggling to get any sort of meaningful growth. And that, that to me, is why I'm a little bit worried about the, the potential to beat the market with Iris. Now, it could, maybe, possibly, potentially, all those good words, uh, deliver market-beating returns over time if things go its way. Mm. I'm not sure enough that I want to necessarily be buying the stock, but nor am I absolutely sure it's going to lose. So I wouldn't want to be selling. I'm right in that hold sector right now because of that geographic potential. That's kind of the option you're buying when you're buying Iris. If it works out, great. Yeah. You'll make some money. If it doesn't, you'll probably lag the market. So geographic potential. So, you know, you don't hate the stock, that's for sure. You're somewhat on a hold, but it's struggling to get meaningful growth. So, yeah, that's where you stand. Pretty much a no from you on Iris. Yeah. Michael, what's your take? Yeah, over, over the years, you know, they've, I think the business has struggled to grow at, at acceptable levels and the share price has essentially, um, mm. you know, reflected that by, by slowly heading south. Recent acquisition is a, is a business which is, you know, a break-even business, doesn't really you know, excite me. And um, the way it's trading just looks pretty poor. Uh, so ultimately, it's not, you know, I think there's far better options out there. It's not one I'd want to be purchasing here. It doesn't have a lot of competitors though, does it? In the, um, in the market? In some ways, not, not necessarily directly. No. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're a broker using uh, using Iris, there aren't there aren't that many competitors, that's right. But um, I think in terms of the retail space, there's a lot of sort of newer platforms out there which, um, you know, are quite, quite advanced compared to what was available to, mm. to retail investors a number of years ago. So where a number of years ago, there was an option to um, maybe purchase Web Iris to use because you know, the platform that came with whatever broker, online broker you're using was pretty poor. I think nowadays, you know, they don't really have that um, that advantage anymore. So yes, in some ways you can argue it's a bit of a sticky product. I just can't see there being a great deal of growth ahead of them uh, over the next few years. And that's, that's sort of what Scott was saying. But Scott, when you talk about the upside risk, um, I just want to delve mm -hmm. into that slightly, Scott. What sort of upside risk do you see? You say perhaps geographical um, growth? Yeah, it's going to have to be that, Ingrid. Uh, to, my, to Michael's point and your point, this is, this is a really sticky business, right? Which is fantastic for not losing profit. It's not great for building profit. And, and so it's going to have to find a way to either really meaningfully deliver a better mousetrap and, you know, you can take your odds on that. So geography is the answer. There are under or lesser served markets around the world. It's not going to make it in the US anytime soon. But again, I mentioned South Africa, Canada, the UK, um, maybe Asia might be a potential for it. And just try it a couple of times to do that, do it well. Thus far with pretty mixed results, I have to say. So kind of underwhelmed with its performance so far, but it's still possible. Um, and to me, you know, it's either, it's, it's death or glory in geographic expansion. If it doesn't, this is a market laggy, it might get a couple of percent a year. Um, if it cracks some of those upsides, then think about the number of, again, potential customers in Canada or South Africa or the UK, mm. relative to Australia, there's a two or fourfold increase in sales, which of course comes at a, at a much larger profit. Now, you know, it's like a 1% of China story, just because the market's there doesn't mean you can necessarily tap it. And that's why I'm not, if, if I thought I could do it well and build a high probability, it'd be a buy outright. Uh, for me, it's just one of those things where really good, solid business, trying hard. Um, if it can crack some of those international markets, that's as you, as you ask where the, where the sales upside and the profit upside will come from. All right, that's Iris for you. Um, thank you, Max, for your question. Um, our final stock is Adriatic Metals. This comes to us from Penny. Penny, thanks for the question. Michael, yep. tell us a bit about the stock first. Do you know much about this one? No, I've, I've had a look. Um, so they're in, involved in exploration, zinc, I think zinc, lead, silver, yep. over in, um, in Bosnia. They're listed in London as well. Um, so it's one of those companies which is not at the stage where it's, it's making money, of course. Um, they're, they're exploring. 
Um, you know, it's not the type of stock I'd normally go for. I mean, I could see the attraction of these sorts of things if you want to get in yep. at an early level and, um, and hopefully over the next few years um, they come good. Um, I'd rather see, see it a little bit more advanced before I'd invest in something like this. So, you know, it's a type of company where you have the longer term guys that are in there, they believe in the story and then, mm. um, you know, you've got the, the traders as well that, that like to trade off the news. I mean, Silver's had a pretty good run, which is probably partly why it's had a pretty good run itself in terms of share price over the last few months, copped a speeding ticket mm. about a week and a half ago from the ASX. Um, you know, with these companies, I guess you have to look at, you know, how much cash they have. Are they going to be tapping the money, sorry, tapping the market for, um, for money every few months or not? I mean, have a look at the management. You know, is this a company where, you know, in terms of this one, it looks like it's being run by ex-finance um, guys, ex-corporate you know, finance bankers, etc. I mean, do you want it to be run by people like that or, or, or people that have uh, been involved in mining? Yeah. Um, you know, at, uh, at the you know, grassroots level over the last sort of few decades or so. So, I mean, they're, they're the basic questions you need to ask. Ultimately, um, yeah, I wouldn't be uh, investing in something at the exploration stage. All right, and Scott? Yeah, I'll, I'm gonna back up Michael on this one, Ingrid. It, it, the, the, the company's announcement, or the company's uh, assessment or description of itself says they're in the uh, exploration uh, of, of current and, uh, and further resources. I mean, that that's, that's kind of you know wildcat strike type type stuff. It, it's a sort of thing that you want to look if you really want a speculation, you want to have a go. And these guys have done an okay job, um, but realistically, this is this is not even they're not even trying to commercialise yet. This is just hey, we're going to go and try and you know um, throw some money around, throw some throw some uh, prospecting and see what we can find. And you see that almost in the share price. There is so much up and down of that over the last couple of years. Um, I mean, the price up nicely over uh, over twelve months, but flat over six. You can pretty much choose your time period. The, the story is pretty much that story um, and just nothing in the way of revenues, losing money. Uh, you know, these types of businesses, if you if you buy them as a group, do terribly. Maybe Adriatic is the is the answer. Maybe it's the, the one that proves the exception to the rule. Uh, generally speaking, though, these are bad ways to try and make money. So look, if you're a, if you're a high risk speculator, we just want to have some fun. Uh, maybe you want to try something like this, but there's nothing particular to recommend Adriatic over anything mm -hmm. else in the sector. As I said, generally speaking, this group of companies lose over time. So you really are, I mean, if you're, you know, there are better odds at Casino, put it that way. All right. Well, I think that's a no from you then, Scott. I'll summarise it that way, I think. Um, let's take a look then at those five stocks. A bit of a summary for our viewers at home. We did get a buy from both on Kogan. So that's a that's a big plus. The, the only one that got two buys, actually, from both our guests. Resolute Mining, it was a no from uh, both our guests. Oznet, a no from both. Iris, a no from both. And Adriatic Metals, a no from both. Not a lot of silver lining from our guests uh, on the program today, but we'll take it. We've got a buy for Kogan and a couple of buys in there, um, as I said, for Borrell and South32 as well. That does uh, wrap up the program. Big thank you to Michael Gable from thank Fairmont you. and Scott Phillips, of course, from The Motley Fool, who joined us over the line. Uh, more to come, of course. Stick around because we're going to go um, to the RBA Governor, Phil Lowe, who's speaking at the Annika Foundation Luncheon. We'll take you there now.
Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.